What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. If there's one thing that I don't like about summer stargazing, it is that it seems to take forever to get dark. But as we move into September, we are benefiting from being more than two months away from the date of longest amount of daylight, and night is coming on at somewhat more reasonable evening hours. By about 8.30 or so, it is time to walk out onto my front porch to see what I can see. One object I like to look for each night that I'm out is the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can be used to find directions as darkness falls. The dipper is found low in the northwest at this time of the year, so close by trees may hide part or all of its view, making it necessary to step around a bit to give a clear view of that horizon. Once it is found, the front two stars of the dipper, the pointer stars, provide a line in the direction of the north star, Polaris. I start with the one marking the bottom of the front of the dipper's bowl, and imagine the line being drawn toward the one marking the lip of the bowl. That continues on to Polaris. Polaris is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is the same height above the horizon from one's location and in that same direction. With that knowledge, I know that I can step out of my front porch. The direction I am looking for is generally north. If I look past the North Star on toward the northeastern sky, at about the same height as the Big Dipper, I notice the W-shaped pattern of Cassiopeia the Queen. Cassiopeia is better seen later in the fall, when it can be found higher up in the northeast, but the W-shaped pattern does stand out easily in the early evening sky, so finding it is not too difficult at this time of the year. If I scan to my left, I am now facing west, the direction I generally like to look for planets. There is a bright star in that direction, but quickly it can be determined to be the star Arcturus. I can determine this to be the case because if I look at the curve of the Big Dipper's handle, the curve is toward Arcturus. I followed an arc to Arcturus. But my hunt for planets is not in vain because as I face Arcturus in the western sky, a brighter point of light catches my eye. That is Venus, the brightest of the planets in our skies. Being so close to the horizon, it is necessary to move about a bit to get trees that might otherwise block it out of the way. A hillside would be good as well. The moon will sweep past it on the evening of the ninth, making for a pretty pairing. If I continue my sweep along the horizon on over to the southeast, Saturn and Jupiter can be spied. Saturn is the dimmer of the two and to the west or right of the much brighter Jupiter. Both of these now lie at opposite ends of the constellation Capricornus. There are no bright stars to compete with these two in Capricornus, so if you see two bright points of light in the southeast, you're likely to have found both of these planets. The moon sweeps past Saturn and Jupiter the evenings of the 16th and 17th this year, the 16th for Saturn, the 17th for Jupiter. It will be in a waxing gibbous phase, and its glare will likely hide many of the dimmer stars. Speaking of the moon, as the moon gets fuller as we move beyond mid-month, it will become this year's harvest moon. 
The harvest moon is defined to be that full moon that is closest to the autumnal equinox. The autumnal equinox is the first day of autumn here in the northern hemisphere. The sun appears to be directly over the equator of the earth, rising due east and setting due west, and in the sky appears to be crossing the celestial equator, the projection of the earth's equator on the sky. This year the autumnal equinox is on September 22nd, and the full moon will be on September 20th. Generally speaking, the moon rises on average about 50 minutes later from day to day. Because of the geometry of the Earth, Moon, and Sun at this time of the year, the moon rises a bit quicker than this, getting it into the sky a bit quicker after sunset. The harvest moon gets its name because it was an aid to farmers harvesting their crops in earlier times. In rising a bit quicker than the average 50-minute interval, it could provide extra light for farmers after the sun has set. A full moon is pretty to watch as it comes over the horizon, but it can be a detriment to stargazing. High haze combined with all of the moonlight pretty much wipes out the light of stars. With only the brightest to see, finding the constellations can be a bit of a challenge. Something else that tends to be noticed about the rising moon is its orange-red color as it rises. Some have thought this was due to a lunar eclipse, but the real cause is the atmosphere of the Earth. Near the horizon, we are looking through a thicker layer of air than when we look straight up. The more air that is between us and a light source like the moon or the sun, the more blue light that gets scattered out of our line of sight and up into the sky. We can see that scattered blue light coming down upon us from all parts of the sky, but the light coming directly to us from the light sources has had that same blue removed. Mostly orange and red light can pass through the scattered layer of air and dust that reach our eyes, hence a reddened light source. So when we see the reddish setting sun or the reddish rising moon, it is our air that contributes that color by removing some color and allowing other colors through. We notice it more at this time of the year because it is getting darker sooner and we are still likely to be up and active, perhaps even outside. So it is more noticeable when we are more likely to be up and out to see it. One other noticeable pattern of stars can be found high overhead, even if the moon is present in the sky. That pattern is called the Summer Triangle. The Summer Triangle is not a constellation. It is known as an asterism. Asterisms are collections of stars that make a recognizable shape or pattern. The Big Dipper is an asterism, as is the teapot that makes up part of Sagittarius the Archer. Asterisms are useful because in many instances the constellations themselves can pose a challenge. Few actually look like their namesake. But if we know an asterism is related to them, the asterism may help those elusive constellations. The Summer Triangle is made of three stars from three different constellations. The brightest and most western of the three is Vega in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. The southern star of the three is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. Lyra is a small, squashed rectangle of stars just to the south of Vega. As a harp, one can imagine Vega being a jewel embedded in the harp, the rectangle of stars being the harp itself. Then it marks the tail of a large swan in flight. At this time of the year, the swan is pictured flying south, appropriate as we see birds flying south as winter comes to call. Stretching south of Deneb is a line of three more stars of about the same brightness, marking its body, 
long neck, and head. Sweeping out from the first star south of Deneb are a pair of stars, one on each side, again of nearly the same brightness. These mark the outstretched wings of this swan. Altair marks the head or neck of Aquila the eagle. Aquila requires a bit more imagination to see, perhaps even a good star map to lay out its wings swept out away from Altair, and its stubby body south of that star. Planets, the harvest moon, bright stars, asterisms, and constellations, lots to occupy the evening as summer slowly loses its grip on the sky and temperatures are much less oppressively hot. Well, we've lost another great scientist, Dr. Richard C. Lewington. He died on July 4, 2021, at the age of 92. Officially, Dr. Lewington died of unknown causes, but I believe he died of a broken heart, and I'll explain that later. Here's a quote from an obituary written by Dr. Michael Dietrich, professor of history and science at the University of Pittsburgh. It's from the July 13, 2021 issue of Nature magazine. Quote, Richard Lewington was a groundbreaking geneticist, best known for bringing molecular tools into evolutionary biology, and for his advocacy against the use of science to rationalize structural inequality. Lewitton and his collaborators revealed how natural selection acts to shape variation, exploring its effects on genes, groups, and individuals. Moving between mathematical and statistical analysis, fieldwork and laboratory experiment, they set the course of molecular population genetics. Lewington saw no place for his discipline in attempts to explain why the children of oil magnates tend to become bankers, while the children of oil workers tend to be in debt to banks. Lewington's sometimes controversial critiques of science, often from a Marxist perspective, inspired new thinking on the relationship between science politics, and society. He was an outspoken critic of sociobiology and adaptationism, and he despised the use of biology to justify racist ideology, especially with regard to IQ testing, unquote. No oh boy, now there's some terminology in that quote that I should probably explain. For instance, it said that Richard Lewington was a critic of sociobiology, now, sociobiology is an attempt by scientists to explain social behavior in terms of evolution. Sociobiology draws from disciplines like psychology, anthropology, zoology, evolution, and genetics. Sometimes they call sociobiology evolutionary anthropology, or sometimes it's called evolutionary psychology. Sociobiologists basically believe that many of our behavioral traits are inherited, and therefore they're likely genetic, and that these behavioral traits provided some sort of an advantage at the time that they showed up in populations. In other words, our behaviors are a result of natural selection, which is usually referred to as evolution. So take violence, for instance. Now, sociobiologists would say that there are genes for violence, 
and that they got selected for in animals because violence provides an evolutionary advantage. But Lewinton and other scientists like Stephen Jay Gould did not agree with this. They argued, yeah, there might be some genes that play a role in violent behavior, but that our social environment plays a big role, too. They thought that violence is a whole lot more complicated than just our genes. It's a complex interplay between our genes and the environment we experience during our childhood, our family and friend relationships, economics, our hardship experiences, our culture, etc., etc. Critics of sociobiology like Lewinton and Gould were also afraid that it could lead to eugenics, which is the conscious effort to improve the genetic quality of the human population with actions like segregation, sterilization, or even mass murder. So basically, Lewinton is arguing against the idea that our DNA is the primary determinant of our behavior. He argued that our experiences in the womb and in childhood, how we're brought up, the culture at the place and time that we live, even the past history of our community, all go into shaping the complex pathways of our behavior. I personally agree with Richard Lewinton on this. I'm well aware that my moods can change from day to day, or even hour by hour. There are some moments in my life that I might feel more aggressive or hostile. Other times I might be more sensitive and gentle. And it's hard to believe that it's my DNA and not the environment that plays the bigger role in that roller coaster ride of emotions I've experienced in my life. Now, Lewitton was also an opponent of the idea of adaptationism. Adaptationism is the concept that an organism's traits evolved as adaptations of that organism to its environment. He, and again Stephen Jay Gould, argued that adaptationism overemphasizes the power of natural selection. So, for instance, let's say you notice that foxes that live in the city tend to be a mixture of orange and gray colors, whereas foxes that live in the wild tend to be mostly orange. Now, an adaptationist would argue that that orange and gray fur of urban foxes provides more camouflage to the animals, so the genes for gray fur became more important in providing visual protection for foxes that live in the city. But there are other reasons for this, though. Maybe the genes for gray color are closely linked to some other gene that provides the fox an advantage living in the city, like greater comfort around humans. So the genes for gray coloration just got sort of dragged along with this other characteristic. Or what if there was a random mutation in one urban fox many, many years ago, and this single fox ended up being the great-great-grandparent of the urban population that's there now. So this one grayish fox passed its genes onto the offspring sort of by accident. Those would be the kind of arguments that Lewinton and Gould would be making. And they'd also argue that how can we be so sure that we can truly understand why we have the traits we have? For instance, why do we have two legs? Does it help us move faster? Are two legs faster than three legs? 
Or is it because we have two arms and two eyes and two ears, so our bodies just happen to like things in pairs? Or do we have two legs so we can wear pants? <laughs> but don't get me wrong. Critics of adaptationism like Lewiton still believe in evolution. He's just saying that it's presumptuous to assume that every single trait that is showing up in our bodies right now is providing some advantage that is knowable to us. He found this to be especially true when it comes to biochemistry. Is every isoform of every enzyme in our bodies finely tuned to serve their specific purpose? Or can there be sequence variations that don't prevent the enzyme from working like it should, even though it's a little bit different? It was actually Dr. Lewington's own laboratory research that led to his conclusion that instead of genetic mutations being rare and harmful, or maybe rare but helpful to the organism, it's possible that the genetic mutation is just more neutral. He concluded that some enzymes are different in such slight ways that it doesn't hurt or help the organism. It just coexists along with the other forms of the same gene. After all, don't forget, we have two versions of each one of our genes. One version comes from our father and one version from our mother. So one of them can be a little bit messed up, altered, without it influencing our overall phenotype. But let's get back to Richard C. Lewington, the man. He was born in 1929 into an upper-middle-class Jewish family in New York City and originally studied biology at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the early 1950s. At that time, believe it or not, Harvard had no faculty member specializing in genetics Lewinton ended up working at Columbia University in New York in the lab of Theodosius Dubshansky, then the most influential evolutionary geneticist in the world. Richard Lewinton completed his Ph.D. in evolutionary genetics in 1954. Then he joined the faculty at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, where he focused on population genetics, which was highly mathematical at that time. He studied the ways that genes are linked on chromosomes and are thus often inherited together. After periods at the University of Rochester in New York and then University of Chicago in Illinois, he spent the rest of his career at Harvard. Now, while at the University of Chicago, Lewinton met Jack Hubby, who was adapting the biochemical technique of electrophoresis to study the fruit fly called Drosophila. Electrophoresis allows scientists to separate molecules by charge and size. This was pretty revolutionary because it offered a new way to study how genes are inherited. He and colleagues at University of Chicago published two landmark papers, which really opened the way for the widespread application of electrophoresis and marked the beginning of molecular population genetics. This research showed that detecting small differences between proteins could provide a whole new way of measuring genetic variability. His papers also revealed higher-than-expected amounts of genetic variability in natural populations. It turns out there's lots of small differences in protein sequences, which really don't appear to make much of a difference to the functioning of that protein. 
This must surely be one of the reasons that Lewinton would eventually reject straight-out adaptationism. Dr. Lewinton spent the bulk of his career at Harvard University, and according to an obituary published in the July 7, 2021 New York Times, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. Quote, he spoke fluent French, wrote treatises in Italian, worked with Buckminster Fuller on his geodesic domes, and played chamber music on the clarinet with his pianist wife, Mary Jane. He was also a volunteer firefighter and a self-described Marxist who chopped his own wood, unquote. And to quote that obituary published in Nature magazine, quote, in Chicago in the 1960s, Lewinton became increasingly politically active, speaking out against racial discrimination, the Vietnam War, and economic inequality. His fervent convictions led him to renounce his election to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 1971 because of its support for secret war research. With ecologist Dick Levins and support from the Ford Foundation, he assembled a group to investigate the role of capital in agricultural research, such as the development of hybrid crop plants, unquote. He clashed with Edward Teller, considered the father of the hydrogen bomb. He called Dr. Teller, quote, a flunky of power, unquote, and disagreed with Teller's argument that science is somehow purer and nobler than other pursuits and should therefore remain above the fray. Lewinton is quoted as saying, quote, science is a social activity, just like being a policeman, a factory worker, or a politician, unquote. Lewinton spoke out against biological racism. His 1972 paper called The Apportionment of Human Diversity found more variation within racial groups than between them, leading him to argue that such distinctions, therefore, had no real genetic basis. When biological arguments for race were again put forward in the context of mental testing in the 1980s, he opposed those too, both on scientific and social justice grounds. The New York Times said, quote, Using what would now count as relatively crude genetic markers like blood groups, but pulling from a significant global database, Dr. Lewinton and his co-workers determined that the great bulk of human genetic variability, roughly 85%, could be found within a population of, say, Asians or Africans, while just 7% of the diversity might distinguish Asians from Africans, from Caucasians, unquote. This finding initially surprised most scientists because it was assumed that since racial groups like Asians and Africans had spent so many thousands of years isolated from each other on different continents, that they would have possessed a myriad of genetic mutations that would distinguish one group from the other. But Lewinton discovered that there were more genetic differences within a racial or ethnic group than there was between those groups. This is probably because Homo sapiens are a relatively young species. We've only been here for about 200,000 years, for instance. Chimpanzees, on the other hand, have been on Earth for 7 million years, which is why chimps have four times more genetic diversity than humans do, 
So we have relatively few mutations, and those we have tend to show up similarly in the different racial and ethnic groups that we see living on our planet. And I could tell you that more modern DNA analysis techniques and analysis of more people from around the world has generally confirmed the large amount of genetic homogeneity in humans that the Lewitton study revealed a half a century ago. In fact, I remember the results of the International HapMap Project that was published in 2008. They examined the DNA of 1,300 people from 11 different ethnic and racial groups and reported only 3% genetic differences between any two random racial groups. 3% difference. That's not much. Dr. Lewitton also fought against sexism in the sciences. He wrote this in 1994, quote, When speaking to academic audiences about the biological determination of social status, I have repeatedly tried the experiment of asking the crowd, how many believe that blacks are genetically, mentally inferior to whites? No one ever raises a hand. But when I then ask how many believe that men are biologically superior to women in analytical and mathematical ability, there will always be a few volunteers. To admit publicly to outright biological racism is a strict taboo, but the avowal of biological sexism is tolerated as a minor foolishness. Unquote. Richard C. Lewinton worked at Harvard University for 31 years, from 1973 until 2014, and according to the New York Times, quote, he had habits of dress, khaki pants, work boots, work shirt, in solidarity with workers. He had habits of principle, notably of authorships. Many senior scientists are listed as authors on research papers done entirely by their students, but Dr. Lewinton would have none of it. If you didn't do any of the work, he insisted, you don't get to take any of the credit. And scientists from around the world were drawn to him. They would gather in his laboratory around an old conference table beneath a mounted moose head and argue about population genetics, legitimate evolutionary theory versus dime store Darwinism, economics, politics, history, and the debt that university scientists owe to the society that nurtured them, unquote. In the final paragraph of the obituary published in Nature magazine, his colleague wrote, quote, Lewinton described himself as a pessimistic biologist. He was a profoundly critical thinker, willing to challenge the scientific and philosophical foundations of his discipline, as well as their social, cultural, and political consequences. His research and reflections set an agenda for generations of biologists, philosophers of biology, and socially engaged scholars. In keeping with his socialism, he disliked biography and its celebration of the individual. When, in 1997, I asked him how I should write about his life, he pulled out of his desk a list of every graduate student, postdoc, and visitor at his laboratory, it was more than 100 people, and said I should write about all of them. They were his greatest source of pride as a scientist. Unquote. By the way, Richard Lewerton's wife, Mary Jane, was his high school sweetheart, and they were married for some 74 years. Apparently, he came home to have lunch with her every day, 
They held hands in movie theaters, and he read poetry to her every night. Although he died at the age of 92, and the cause of death is officially unlisted, I should tell you that his wife had passed away just three days before, and he had stopped eating. In my opinion, he died of a broken heart. Professor Richard C. Lewinton. May he rest in peace. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.